tuned to Hybrid Pod, a podcast exploring conversations of critical digital pedagogy, listening for ways to empower students and champion learning. It's the aural side of hybrid pedagogy, a digital journal of learning, teaching, and technology. I'm Chris Friend from St. Leo University. For several years now, folks from Hybrid Pedagogy have hosted Digital Writing Month, or DigiRIMO for short, as a digitally focused event to parallel the National Novel Writing Month, or NanoRIMO, that's been happening since 2009. The idea was to gather a bunch of folks who were interested in playing around with the nature, possibilities, and reach of digital writing, however that gets defined. This year's iteration is hosted by Mahabali. I'm an associate professor of practice at the Center for Learning and Teaching at the American University in Cairo in Egypt. Kevin Hodgson. I'm the co-director of technology with the Western Massachusetts Writing Project. And Sarah Honeychurch. I'm a learning technologist at the University of Glasgow. I'm also a PhD student at the university and I'm looking at peer interaction and I play ukulele very, very badly. We'll get back to that ukulele business in a couple minutes, but here's why I'm talking with them in particular. I've watched a few of their conversations as they've worked to bring things together for the month, and I was impressed, okay, maybe a little overwhelmed, by how they work together. In this episode of Hybrid Pod, I sat down with Maha, Sarah, and Kevin to explore the idea of collaboration, how it works, what it is, and how we can facilitate it in our classes. I have to first discuss how they started working together. Do you remember? Yes. <laughs> I don't remember. Uh, it was Wise it was 14, um, I guess, but actually, really, for me and Kevin, I think it was um, Wise 15, Kevin, wasn't it? When I said I was never, ever, ever, ever going to play my ukulele in public, ever, ever, ever. And then you and Ron got me playing my ukulele in public by that afternoon. That event, Rhizo 14, was a January 2014 MOOC about rhizomatic learning, hosted by David Cormier. Participants in that MOOC collaborated to make several products that reflected their thinking about the time they spent together. One of the projects they worked on was a collaborative autoethnography, which eventually led to a complex article published on hybrid pedagogy. Here's Maha on how it developed. There was a very, very large group of people who contributed to the collaborative autoethnography, and so we had several different small projects with different groups of people from there deciding what we wanted to do with it. And one of them which is the untext which we published in, uh, in Hybrid Pedagogy, was, the, was, was maybe one of the craziest things I think I'd ever done. <laughs> we were trying to figure out why we weren't publishing our collaborative autoethnography and going ahead with it and doing something with it. And we started a Google Doc trying to explore what that was, just trying to discuss it, and it ended up into this thing. Yeah, so there were 33 of us actually contributed to the original Google Doc, 33 individual accounts of RISO 14 and I think by the time it got to doing the untext there was about 12 of us. Actually there were 10 for the untext and 8 for the final article. And you're right Maha that was the biggest bunch of any of us ever I think wasn't it? Yeah. And Kevin you were part of that as well weren't you? I was. Um, I think that's a pretty good example though of, of the idea of open open networks and open kind of documents and open writing um, and the way that digital writing kind of gives us agency in ways that um, you know non-digital doesn't always kind of do so easily. I won't say it doesn't do it at all, but I mean there was, um, it came in the aftermath of rhizomatic learning, uh, trying to make sense of what happened um, in a course where 
um, you know, the leader of the course, so-called leader of the course, right, Dave Cormier, um, didn't really lead us at all purposely um, and let us kind of uh, make our own learning as we went along. Um, and so when that uh, document around trying to make sense of that kind of came out, um, you know, I, I saw it as a kind of playground of jumping in and um, thinking about trying to get my thoughts together for sure, um, but also in a playful way that um, kind of opened up what writing is in a kind of different tangent, I think, because, you know, we were writing in the market. In a lot of ways, the comments were as interesting as the te text itself. Um, and then we started adding different media into it. Um, yeah, it got really crazy and chaotic and convoluted at points. Um, but the multiple kind of voices that emerged from there and all the different kind of, uh, you know, in the text, beyond the text, kind of inside the text uh, was really, I thought, fascinating in a lot of ways. And um, uh, I think trying to tangle that into the article that you guys kind of pulled together for, for the journal was a brave act indeed. Um, and in some ways you had to kind of wrangle, um, you know, wrangle that open nature of the document into something that would fit the form of the expectation, you know, of, uh, of uh, the hybrid pedagogy site, um, which itself has a lot of openness to it. But even so, you know, there were kind of, you know, ways you had to pull it into shape and um, you probably ran up against the, um, the walls of what's expected and what's not expected with digital writing. Yeah, it's called Chris Friend. I was just—I was about to point <laughs> yeah. myself and say I was that wall. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, because and and that was actually going to be a, a question I wanted to ask is because um, Kevin, you used the word crazy and overwhelming, and um, you talked about trying to make sense of what happened. Um, there's there's a part of and and this is a, a personal shortcoming. There's a part of me that is afraid of that much messiness. And and Maha saw a lot of that whenever she she brought the document to me, and and I was just like. Oh my gosh, I don't know what's going on here. I need a map to help me navigate this document. I can't make sense of it, and I don't know how I could be expected to present this to the readership of Hybrid Pedagogy and have them make sense of it without some kind of direction. And that's why we decided to do the document around the document mm -hmm. to basically say, here's a path that you can follow. Let me step in here for a second to confess that this is something I do all the time. I try to impose a sort of sensible order on things that may be inherently spontaneous and decentralized. A while back, when we needed to train new editors for hybrid pedagogy, we tried to think of how to describe our process, which we'd long thought of as organic, iterative, and individualized, to a dozen people so we all knew how we worked. One of the first things I did was to draw a diagram of our process that made it look like a subway route with various stops and stations and transfer points along the way. While the diagram did help me explain our process, it also involved a very real risk through the process of abstraction. Here's Maha again to explain. There's a concept that we talk about a lot that Terry Elliott raised, the legibility, right? And when you try to make anything legible, which we do in any kind of social science or any kind of science, you're trying to make something legible, but in reality it is chaotic and messy. And you try to represent it in a, in a more organized way, and you lose what it really is, right? This idea of legibility originates with James C. Scott text, Seeing Like a State, How Certain Schemes to Improve the Human Condition Have Failed, published by Yale University in 1999. So everything in life that we study is really much messier than we represent it when we write about it or when we talk about it when we research it. So I think what's interesting about what we were doing in that particular collaboration is that we were letting it be itself. 
rather than try to put on a layer of organization. That layer of organization was that article we wrote around it. Uh, but because we embedded the, art, the document in it, it was not that bad. It was like telling the story of how that happened and, and trying to come up with something out of it, but keeping the original artifact there. The original untext was a bit unnerving to me. It had a central document with lots of contributions from various authors. Then there were the other conversations that went on in the margins, in which contributors would chat with one another about the ideas that they were sharing in the body of the document. As an outsider trying to make sense of the document, I struggled with the multiple simultaneous narratives. I don't know where I'm going with this. Something like that's, that is a, an element of collaboration that I still struggle with, is trying to find out how to make the marginalia around a document as a canvas for a different kind of collaborative workspace than the document itself, which is also somewhat collaborative, but more owned by the writer and less by the mm-hmm. editor. Yeah. yeah, it's almost like um, it requires explicit teaching. Yes. Like, you know, this is how we write in our document, but this is how we write <laughs> in the margins of our document, right? And um, yeah, I mean, I even see that with my, you know, my young students where they're just kind of learning that um, and what that looks like. And I had the same, believe it or not, I had the same <laughs> kind of thing with mine, you know, hitting that resolve button. Yeah. It's like, well, we didn't even talk about that yet. <laughs> um, it's interesting <laughs> how they label it resolve, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think it's kind of interesting kind of, uh, you know, semantics kind of, and what that means and all the kind of weight behind it. It's not really resolved. Well, and I think, I mean, that's a really good opportunity to explain to students that, you know, words mean things. And that word is resolve, not close. And there's a huge difference between the implications behind those two words. And it's it's worth talking about. Mm. Um, So we've we've kind of shifted the conversation into talking about students in classrooms and such. And and I'd like to keep pressing along those lines if I could. I've had lots of experience in both ninth and 13th grades giving students group assignments where I want them to collaborate on whatever they come up with. And I have very often seen them, I take two steps away from where their group is gathered and they've already started dividing out and saying, well, you're going to do number one and I'm going to do number two and this other person's going to do number three and then we'll uh, we'll combine our answers at the end rather than, hey, here's number one, let's talk about it. And, and I'd love to hear from any of you who have some insights on how we can encourage collaboration instead of delegation in our students. That's, you know, that delegation is something we fall into. So even we fell into it, right, a little bit. And just thinking of some of our planning for Digital Writing Month, uh, in, um, or at least I fell into it, I think. I think Maha was trying to make it more wider. And I said, well, why doesn't this week be this? <laughs> you know, uh, and I, yeah, I think it's. I think it gets trickier when we're not in the same room, too, um, that in not in the same time zone, you know, that that kind of discussion about a, a kind of bigger things takes time to do. And um, so I, I think co- the collaborative nature of online stuff um, can go both ways, I guess. Uh, I guess the same. I guess I don't have an answer to your question chris i didn't expect you would i just wanted to hear you talk about it that's t- talk about time zones omaha remember this stuff that we did for ed context that came out of um the hyperpedagogy training yes and it's a bit weird it's a bit weird for me and you because we're used to sort of swarming and doing everything at the same time but we actually got this idea that um say you know you might be up early so you might do it first and then pass it over to me and then pass it on to somebody else so that's actually a way of collaborating but it's asynchronous so you do something and then i look at the same thing you've done and i revise it then i pass it over to somebody else who revises it that's That's maybe a a, 
yeah and that and we we did that you know when we had deadlines early on with our collaborative mm. stuff that's what we were doing mm-hmm. who can work on this when yeah that's true and it, it, it was a, it was a divide and conquer of time zones not a divide and conquer of responsibilities um yeah yeah you're right for students i mean that's an important skill i mean just uh you know i look at my 11 year olds like i have no idea what the world's gonna be like when they kind of graduate from college right i mean there's no way to predict but you know collaboration working with people in different time zones and different things i mean clearly will be part of most of their future so that idea of communication and laying out like how that's going to play out and who's not just who's going to do what but how are we going to go about doing this maybe that's the kind of what i'm going to get chris with your question what's the process we're going to use so what I do with my own students, so I teach um, educational game design to undergrads in a creativity course. I teach only part of the course, not the entire course. And what I do with the students is that I don't tell them what number two is. They know that the big end thing of the class is that they're going to design an educational game in groups. But we do number one, and they sit and talk about number one, and then they tell me what they're going to do about number one, and they share with the class. In the next class, they discover exactly what number two is going to be. So they don't have that chance to break things up too early. And they get a chance to discuss every single thing on its own. It, it just allows them to, to sit and think about every single aspect of, the, of what they're doing, you know, separately, rather than just give them a big thing and let them uh, break it up early on. That's really curious. So, yeah, I've got two reactions to that one. And the first one is it sounds like we are helping our students by kind of presenting them a larger project piecemeal, um, which it's not really, it's just questions. Yeah, I was going to say, which initially I kind of cringed at. I was thinking, ooh, aren't we then doing work for them that they need to learn to do themselves, where they need to learn to manage a large project and make it feel smaller to themselves? But then I realized that you know, maybe not, that maybe this is just a uh, helping them limit themselves. And, and back to what Sarah was talking about at the beginning, helping them develop some focus, where it's, you know, we've got this big thing that we're working toward at the end, but for now, let's just look at this one part of it. Yeah, so, I mean, in my particular case, I like them to design an educational game about a cause that they care about. So after they've learned a little bit about a little bit about playing games and reflecting on what makes a game good and so on, they sit for one class and decide on what kind of causes they care about before they decide on what kind of game they're going to do. And then, you know, they start to develop the ideas of the game and then they start to evaluate it for how educational it is. And then designing the actual game, I don't care how they divide that. As long as they've thought about everything together, the execution is less important to me. And we, and we do that in our writing as well, don't we? Sometimes we'll just say, I'm going to do this bit because I'm the only person who's got the time to do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But mind you, it always ends up that everybody else looks at it anyway and tinkers. Yeah, and I think, Maha, you've, you've hit on something, well, in this case, pretty profound here, where the, the, what I just wrote down was thinking about it together is important, but the execution doesn't matter. And I think that's an excellent distinction to make. I think that's really important. Huh. You're, you're just you're making me now kind of reevaluate how I'm having my students do things in class because I completely agree with that distinction and I'm trying to check myself and see whether what I actually do in class um, um, demonstrates that philosophy that I agree with. I think the focus on process is important, so I'm glad that, you know, Maha brought that up and kind of resonated and, um, you know, I think too that, um, you know, at least the educational system that that I'm in is very product, you know, oriented. So um, that idea of what is the final product look like, that's what we're going to assess. Trying to kind of push back on that and say, no, what are the conversations, you know, what are the, what's the... What's the work that went in to kind of lead to that is actually the real learning, right? Not always the kind of final product. 
I wanted to throw out two metaphors and see if either of these worked for you guys. Um, the, the first one is uh, related back to the idea of um, to contribute something and then there will be someone there to, to listen or to help or that sort of thing. And I was wondering if we should focus more on the net part of network and think of the network as being a safety net that can catch us if we jump into this mess and we don't know what's going on. Instead of worrying about it overwhelming us and trapping us, it could actually be below us and trying to support us. Um, the other metaphor that I wanted to throw out was if we go swimming, uh, I live in Florida, we swim, sorry. Um, <laughs> if you go swimming, you don't like the first time you go swimming someplace, you don't usually jump into the deep end. You usually start out in the shallow end and get used to it first. And if you go into the pool and you go into the, sh the shallow end and you wade around a little bit and you keep your head above water the entire time, and then you get back out again, you still went swimming. And so you can still participate in these networks by just kind of, well, putting your toe in the water and, and testing it out, and you still participated, and that's still enough. And I think maybe some of the problem could be that people believe you have to take a running dive off the 250-meter you know, diving board and go splashing down and, and, and bury yourself 20 feet underwater until it counts as participating. And, and I think there's a difference. That's a good point. Yeah, I like, I like the swimming metaphor. Um, I think that you know, the, the net one is idealistic that, yeah, I, I love to believe that. I'm not always sure that's the case. Uh, and I think it's part of because our mindset is built around our traditional kind of learning of, uh, you know, if I see this as a course, which we're not calling it, obviously, but if I see it that way, um, then I'm expecting that, you know, there's an expectation I have, right, where things are going to come my way. I'm going to be expected to do things. And I already have a busy life. Therefore, I'm not going to kind of begin at the beginning. <laughs> um, and... Um, but but I, I do think that idea that um, you know you could you could pop in anywhere and do anything and still be a participant um, that there's no judgment on oh you didn't do enough <laughs> or you did too much um, you know those kind of things are important uh, part of of the idea of what kind of a learning system is in, in this day and age or should be. I like Michael Weller's um, term of emergent goals. So, so there's one thing of letting students or learners set their own goals, and then there's another thing of allowing them to take the agency of emergent goals so that even though maybe I start out Digital Writing Month planning to do something, that I allow myself to change those goals as I get exposed to something else and as I change and, and all that. And, and that's, I think, very important with these open learning experiences because you never know what you're going to get. We don't want to talk about collaboration as if it's all, you know, roses. Um, there's, whenever you're in this very open kind of experience, you never really know what you're going to get. You never know who's in there. You never know what their background is, what their culture is. And, and inadvertently sometimes, and maybe because I'm like from a very different culture than most of the people I collaborate with, I'll find that someone took offense at something and I'll be like, what? What are you talking about? And it's on Twitter and it's, you know, there you don't have enough space and I don't have that person's email address and we might not even be following each other and I couldn't talk to them privately sometimes. And I have no idea what went wrong. And sometimes if there's a friend who notices the conversation, they explain to me like, you know, over like an hour what misunderstanding happened. But that doesn't always happen. In two seconds. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I think there's a part where sometimes you need to be a little bit forgiving and, you know, have goodwill that probably that person didn't mean to, or maybe I said something that I didn't notice. And it's, it's quite hard to do that sometimes. But if you're like, I didn't do anything, why are you doing this to me? Um, and also when you collaborate, it's, 
it's quite easy to to overstep on someone, you know, step on someone's foot or, you know, edit something that they had done. For listeners who are new to HybridPod, we talked a lot more about issues like these in the classroom environment back in episode two, Compassion in the Classroom. In that episode, I talked with Maha Bali and Asao Inoy about how an intention toward compassion can help shape and build our classrooms. But in my recent conversation with the DigiRimo folks, Maha brought up another kind of discomfort that shows up when we introduce new processes or ways of working or writing. So I, I guess part of it is embracing messiness and uncertainty, which is not easy, especially for young people, and not necessarily easy for older people either who might be set in their ways. Actually, I think it's far easier for young people to do, and I think they do it all the time. Let me risk stretching that playground metaphor a bit too far. Think about what a huge, bustling playground looks like. There are little energetic bodies moving every which way at dizzying speed. There's cacophonous, joyous, indiscriminate noise everywhere. How is that not overwhelming or intimidating for a child? How can they manage, understand, and participate? I suggest three basic principles here. First, kids don't worry about the entire playground. They can't do playground, but they can play one game, so they limit their scope of attention. Second, they look for the kind of play they're interested in. Running, tag, hide-and-seek, swings, slides, climbing. They're in the mood for something, so they look for that something out of the many options that are available. And third, the part that I think children do so much better than adults, they choose one person to say hi to. They walk up, they say hi, they ask either what that person is playing or whether they can play too. And that's about it, right? Now, when adults do the same sort of thing, we have memberships and rosters and HR departments. It's not quite so simple as children on a playground. To put it in non-playground terms, a new potential node on the network identifies an existing node on the network and asks that node to extend the network to include the newcomer. No managerial decisions need to be made, the network just figures out the new configuration. Kids know there's a newcomer playing tag when the newcomer runs away from whoever's it. No announcement is necessary. In the next episode of Hybrid Pod, I'll chat more about nodes and networks with Bonnie Stewart, exploring how networks and learning and scholarship interact. For now, though, let's get back to Kevin's thinking about making our learning spaces more accessible to newcomers. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I was going to just say, too, that the kind of tension between how to make um, an experience, a space, a document, whatever it is, as open as possible while also providing people who are a little nervous inroads in, right? So you have to make the technology hurdles low for easy entry um, and yet um, push at the kind of bounds of what writing is too. And so those two things often kind of crash into each other at points. Um, so I suspect there, are, there were a lot of people who may have first been interested in that, like in that you know, document, and then looked at it and said, there's no way, there's no entry point for me in here, right? Um, even though there were multiple entry points from our point of view, but maybe not from there. So, uh, you know, I think we're kind of still, we talk a lot in our writing project about this idea of kind of, we're still in the moment of technology where there's a lot of uncertainty about uh, where it's all going and what changes are happening to the way we write 
Um, and that kind of uh, makes some people uh, definitely nervous. And particularly if they're thinking, oh, my students are going to do this, right? And how is that going to look in my classrooms, what Chris was just talking about? Um, you know, how do what we do on rhizomatic learning or for myself when I'm facilitating the uh, CL MOOC or Digital Writing Month, like how does that translate into meaningful learning experiences in our classrooms, whatever age we teach? And that's the thing we have to keep in the back of our minds. Kevin, I guess one thing that you were really, really good at, and you might even not even know this, but you're really, really good at when you do something, um, giving hints about how to do it. Terry's fantastic about this as well. And I guess that's what I'd say to people. Um, if they want to get involved, but they're not quite sure, find something who's doing what they like and ask them to explain what they're doing. Because it's something Terry Elliott said to me earlier this year. If you ever need to know, just ask me and I'll tell you. So I do <laughs> a lot. <laughs> Yeah. So, so I guess that's what that's what all of us have got to try and do during the during November, is give people lots of hints. Yeah, and then and then there's the element of of the community building that happened before all of this started to happen. It's not like we were complete strangers. I know people would probably consider us strangers, but we weren't. You know, by the time we were doing all this, we weren't complete strangers, and we were comfortable with each other. At least some of us were comfortable enough with each other. Well, I was just going to say too that uh, I mean that's a good point, Maha. That um, you know. Uh, you know, everyone was welcome to join in, right? Um, yes. And a lot of people did, which is great. Um, but I, I think it kind of it shows in a lot of ways too. Um, you, you know how um, the ability to connect uh, through social networking and online and technology, um, you know, kind of allows the world to come together. I mean, I, I know it sounds sappy, like a kind of Hallmark card, but it's true. I mean, I can't even remember how many countries are represented in that one kind of radio show that we did where people were recording their voices around the world and putting it yeah. into a shared file. And then, you know, I was just kind of pulling it down and dragging it in and kind of trying to edit it a little bit. And, um, but just then you listen to the voices. I mean, that's what always gets me. Like when I listen to that, um, just the multitude of voices yeah. represented actually the multitude of the play itself, like the theme of the play, but just hearing people's voices all coming together together in this one space is really, it's a magical thing. While I agree that those sorts of collaborations are magical, I have to confess to getting easily overwhelmed by them. Maha, Sarah, and Kevin have been working together for some time to prepare Digital Writing Month 2015. Along the way, they asked me to participate in a small part of the project. I agreed, and so I got looped into some of their emails. No, a bunch of their emails. Tons of emails, generated in the span of, oh, an hour or two. I got overwhelmed for a bit, but I could tell that this process worked really well for the three of them. I wanted to look further into the differences in our procedural needs. So, all right, I'm, I'm going to... Try and play a little bit of the role of devil's advocate here, um, and I'm, it's it's a genuine role that I'm playing. So so I think that you'll understand where my question's coming from here. Um, when I when I see the kinds of work that Maha does, which is very connected, um, I swear she doesn't have a thought that exists by itself. Everything is always a thought about a reference to another thing that someone did when they were talking about this other thing that someone else did. Um, and that, that's the way her brain works. And it's amazing. And I don't know how your brain keeps track of all of that. And then when I hear the three of you talking together, you're all getting excited about these things that have lots of voices put together and, and lots of connections being made. And, and that's the kind of stuff that, that 
can very easily overwhelm me. Um, whenever I started getting CC'd on your planning emails, it was one of those moments of, <laughs> holy hell, what have I done? Uh, no, don't apologize. It's fantastic. It's the way you guys work. Everything's fine. I just knew that I was going to have to change the way I filter things because the volume is different. Um, and so uh, my question is something like, how can we create, because Kevin, you talked about inroads before. How can we create inroads for people like me who see the network, not the nodes? If there's this big project going on, it looks so complex. And, and I think this might be behind the, the, the problem of getting people involved. Yeah. So I guess what I would say is I think it's really, really important to focus. Um, and I, speak, I spoke to Dave Cormier about this quite a bit before Riser 15, that you can't focus on everything. So what I do is, although, yes, I'm all over the place doing everything, it looks like actually what I'm doing is I'm focusing very narrowly on a set of people, a conversation. Um, and yeah, sure, once I've got the hang of one conversation, then I'll look at another conversation and another one. But I think that might be a really good way of explaining it to people. Rather than a great big messy network, it's a lot of conversations. And some people are having more than one conversation. Some people are just focusing on one conversation. And the conversations are, are happening in different places, and you don't need to yes. be in every single place. So uh, absolutely. So in Rizo, Facebook, Kevin was never on Facebook, and he was in the middle of Rizo. Yep. 14 and 15, and that's fine. Yep. He misses out on a little bit, and, and we feel bad about that. <laughs> we do feel bad about that. And I didn't participate this much be- this much this time around because of that. Yeah, but, me too. But, but it, it's... It, more comfortable for some people and some people aren't on Twitter too I mean it's, yeah. it's just different people for different things so I think if you're asking specifically about Digital Writing Month whereas if there was like one thing people would do if they wanted to move in a linear fashion they could either just go to the website itself which you know every time something new is there it will be there so that's a linear thing with time or they could subscribe yep. for email updates and they'll get the email updates but if they're if they're not uh, you know, if not, they're not in that kind of frame of mind and they just want to drop in and out, they could write something in the roster, give us their uh, post things to the Digitrimo hashtag only when they feel like it, uh, find out when the Twitter chats are, we're going to have a calendar, they could just drop in for the Twitter chats, like whatever they're interested in. So what I'm hearing is whenever there's this large um, rhizomatic network that we're confronted with, if it seems to overwhelm us, um, we just need to remember that we are only a node and that yes. we only need to make one contribution in one place. And other network nodes will be able to connect to that, and the the network will kind of form around us. Yes. Once we make yes. one connection. Yep. Right. Talk to one. Talk to one person. That's all you need to do. It sounds so simple, doesn't it? But I guess that really is the secret to collaboration, if there is one. Don't try and manage everything. Pick one aspect to focus on, then talk to one person focusing on that same thing. Then. Well, then you run like hell before someone tags you as it. You've been tuned to Hybrid Pod, a production of Hybrid Pedagogy, Inc. Just because the show is over doesn't mean the conversation ends. Everyone who contributed to this episode is accessible through Twitter, and so is the show itself. So along those lines, at Hybrid Pod and at Chris underscore friend would like to thank at Bali underscore Maha, at Nomad War Machine, that's Sarah Honeychurch, and at Dogtracks, D-O-G-T-R-A-X, who is Kevin Hodgson. You can subscribe to HybridPod in iTunes, Stitcher, or Player FM, but the best place to go is our home on the web. Find us at hybridpod.audio, where you can hear all our episodes and add to the conversation online. That's hybridpod.audio. Thanks for listening. 